Lord Jesus, as Jim was just sharing, I was reminded again how blessed we are to have Your Word. And how thankful we are, Lord, that You saw fit to write down the Scriptures. To not only speak Your Word so long ago from creation forward, to speak through Your servants, the prophets, but Father, to have it written down that we might have before us a testimony, a witness of the prophecies spoken, prophecies fulfilled, the truth of Your Word. Father, that we might have this absolutely amazing document that not only speaks the truth of history, but it speaks Your love for us and Your passion for the heart of all mankind. And as we open Your Word this morning, I'm just reminded again, looking over it this week, Father, what an amazing blessing it is to have Your truth before us. I ask, Father, You would draw the words off the page and apply them to our hearts. For some, Father, as a healing balm. For others, Father, as a a convicting ointment, Father. For still others, an anointing to ministry. Whatever Your call is, Father, on each of our lives, we pray Your Spirit would be speaking to us this morning. And as we study Your Word, You would speak Your Word into our lives today. We know this is only possible by the power of Your Spirit, and so we ask, Holy Spirit, come and teach us now. In Jesus' name, Amen. Jeremiah 23. I will tell you before I start reading, there are two passages, two places in Jeremiah that are key to the whole entire book. This is one of them. The next one is going to be when we get over into chapter 31. The whole book hinges around these. Without these chapters, the book would be a stunning, sad history. And yet the Lord brings us to these places. Let's, let's listen in. Chapter 23, verse 1. Woe to the shepherds who are destroying and scattering the sheep of my pasture, declares the Lord. Therefore, thus says the Lord God of Israel concerning the shepherds who are tending my people. You have scattered my flock and driven them away and have not attended to them. Behold, I am about to attend to you for the evil of your deeds, declares the Lord. Then I myself will gather the remnant of my flock out of all the countries where I have driven them and bring them back to their pasture, and they will be fruitful and multiply. I will also raise up shepherds over them, and they will tend them, and they will not be afraid any longer, nor be terrified, nor will any be missing, declares the Lord. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch. And he will reign as king and act wisely and do justice and righteousness in the land. In his days Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is his name by which he will be called the Lord our righteousness. Yahweh Sidkenu. Therefore behold the days are coming declares the Lord. When they will no longer say as the Lord lives who brought up the sons of Israel from the land of Egypt. But... As the Lord lives, who brought up and led back the descendants of the household of Israel from the north land and from all the countries where I have driven them, then they will live on their own soil. Peter said, 2 Peter 1.19, I know it's a verse that I have quoted to you often. I hope it's one you are very familiar with. We have the prophetic word more sure to which you would do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. This word of prophecy, absolutely sure, is a great comfort to me. In fact, there's a five-word phrase in this that every Christian should commit to memory. Five simple words to remember out of this morning. Behold, the days are coming. Behold, the days are coming. Look! The time is close. On your best days, behold, the days are coming. We'll put a little extra hitch in your giddy-up. On your worst days, behold, the days are coming. We'll help see you through. Behold, the days are coming. It's not escapism. It's confidence. Vacation is escapism. The movies, (laughs) that's escapism. Music, sports, that new diet you're on is all escapism. (laughs) It's all thinking we can get away, we can have a change, 
But life is still back there. Life is still waiting. Life still comes back around on us. All these things are just temporary escapes to the greater reality. Behold, the days are coming. Calvin once said, not John Calvin, Calvin from Calvin and Hobbes, once said, (laughs) if we're just going to die, what's the point of living? Behold, the days are coming. And that is great news. As we open up Jeremiah 23, we see America, I mean Judah, (laughs) in a free fall. We see a country once blessed by the Lord falling apart. I've heard many of you making spot-on parallels between our country and the kingdom of Judah as we're reading through Jeremiah. Don't stop doing that. Keep looking for those parallels. It's important for us to have eyes to see and ears to hear what the people of Judah would not see and would not hear. We've got to be alert and aware. America in judgment? Judah in judgment? By the way, side note, what's the deal with sequestration? You had to know I was going to mention it. And most Americans don't even know what it is. You ask the common person on the street, what is sequestration? No idea. You know, the word sequestration literally means confiscation. Just confiscate something. The whole idea for America is it's the forced confiscation of $1.2 trillion out of the projected government spending across the next decade. What that means for us in 2013 is $85 billion, or roughly 2.4% of the federal budget. So you understand it better now? <laughs> you money-minded people would. The rest of us are going, what's the deal? The whole idea behind the sequestration was it was intended to be a negative that would force the one-time super committee of last year, that turned out not to be so super, to force them to work out a deal to bring down our debt to be wise about government spending, to cut where cuts needed to be made, and they couldn't do it. And gang, that, I believe, is the real issue. Not whether or not there's sequestration. And let me just tell you, when it comes to finances, God knows what we need. God blesses as He sees fit. God will meet your needs if you put your trust in Him. Just trust Him to do it. You really believe that, Rick? I absolutely do. And that's not prosperity gospel. That's just faith. The Lord knows our needs. He's aware of it. But the thing that has conservatives and liberals and independents alike frustrated about our current government is the inability of our government to work together. They cannot get their heads together and make it work for the good of the country. It's always about the good of the politics, the good of the party, rather than putting country first. And that's very frustrating. And there's a two-word phrase that I would use for it. Bad shepherding. And that was the problem in Judah. The same problem in Judah is the problem we have today. The people of Judah ended up having their own sequestration. Not 2.4% of spending, but 100% of their entire population was sequestered in Babylon because of bad shepherding. Judah, circa 609 B.C., was spiritually and morally bankrupt. And America, circa 2013, is spiritually and morally bankrupt. The priests of Judah were corrupt. So the religious leaders of our country... The prophets were false, as we continue to see false prophets arise in all circles in our world. The politicians in Judah were self-serving power mongers. Enough said. But we see something in all this, especially as we open up chapter 23, that every single leader from the home to the halls of Congress, to the household of God, every leader had better understand, and that is this, the Lord holds His shepherds responsible. If you've ever had the thought, as just an attender of this fellowship or any other, if you've ever had the thought, I don't know if I can trust the shepherds. I'm not sure if the elders have our best interest in mind. not sure if I can follow the leaders. Understand this. God holds His shepherds responsible. And you can take great peace in that. Your shepherds here at the bridge, great men. 
but to go way off. I could go way off. God will hold responsible those He has called to lead in any situation among His people. Have faith in Him. Trust Him that He will do it. We come into chapter 23 and we begin with a severe judgment of the shepherds. Literally, among the shepherds of what I called a couple Wednesdays ago, the final four. The last four kings who led Judah into their Babylonian sequestration. In the run-up to chapter 23, we see a serious warning come to these final four by the Lord. In chapter 21, he starts with the last of the four kings, Zedekiah. He hammers Zedekiah. Zedekiah, who is not even a son of Josiah in the line of the kings, he's a brother to Josiah, he's an uncle of some, and so he's a puppet put in place by Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon to rule over Judah until he began to get a little hot-headed and turn against Nebuchadnezzar, and then the flood came in. In chapter 22, after hammering Zedekiah, God draws back to the beginning of the final four and He nails Jehoahaz, son of Josiah. And then He nails Jehoiakim. And then Jehoiachin, also known as or called by the Lord, Coniah. And chapter 23 picks it up from there with a two-verse summation of the whole problem of Judah. And again, it's bad shepherds. Let me read this to you one more time. Woe to the shepherds who are destroying and scattering my sheep of my pasture, declares the Lord. And shepherds of the bridge, let me just remind you something you already know. This fellowship belongs to God. And not to any of us. He is the chief shepherd. Which means, again, anyone who sits or stands in leadership is simply serving the Lord and His people, and we have no ownership here. We are owned by the Lord. Therefore, thus says the Lord God of Israel, concerning the shepherds who are tending My people, you've scattered My flock, you've driven them away, you have not attended to them. Behold, I am about to attend to you for the evil of your deeds, declares the Lord. God is saying, you're supposed to be attending to My flock. You're supposed to be caring for my people, looking after their needs, putting their best interests ahead of your own. But the Lord says, because you haven't done that, I'm going to attend to you. Jehoahaz went into captivity into Egypt as the Lord attended to him. Jehoiakim died a donkey's death, literally thrown out outside the gates of Jerusalem. It's thought that Nebuchadnezzar perhaps took Jehoiakim into captivity and as he was leading him out of the city, said, just kill this guy. And they murdered him there and left his body to rot on the side of the road. Coniah, Jehoiachin. Coniah was carried off to Babylon and he died there. Zedekiah, the last of the four kings, and you Bible students know this, he watched his own sons murdered, slaughtered before his eyes, and then had his own eyes put out by the Babylonians. And he died blind and alone in Babylon. Because you have not attended to my people, I am going to attend to you. Bad shepherds. Bad shepherds. But a worse situation occurred. Something else came out of all this. You Bible students know, again, the wickedness of the second to last king, Jehoiachin, who the Lord calls Coniah. His name was also Jeconiah, but the Yeh from Yahweh, God takes out and just calls him Coniah. You don't have anything to do with my name, therefore I'm not going to let you borrow off of my name for your name, Coniah. And his wickedness in three months was so bad, it resulted in a divine curse on the rest of the royal family line of Solomon. From Coniah forward, no one could sit on the throne in Judah of the line of the great king Solomon, son of David. Look at verse 30 of chapter 22. Thus says the Lord, Write this man down childless, a man who will not prosper in his days, for no man of his descendants will prosper, sitting on the throne of David or ruling again in Judah. So you had bad shepherds, and now in addition to that, you have a broken branch. David rises up, God's man, man after God's own heart. His son Solomon takes the throne. Solomon gets into idolatry. His son Rehoboam places a heavy burden on the people. Jeroboam then splits the country, taking half north, or taking the northern ten tribes north, as Rehoboam holds on to the southern couple of tribes. 
And the kingdom is split, and from there on, it's rocky, uphill, downhill. Israel in the north never has a good king. Judah in the south only has three or four who aspire to the gold standard of David. Josiah was the last one. And then the last four come in, bad shepherds, who now break the branch. That branch that came through Solomon's line now is broken, and no one could ever again sit on the throne in Judah. And I'm sure at that point, Satan thought he'd won. I have cut off the possibility that some ruler out of Judah can sit on the throne of David as God prophesied. I thwarted a prophecy of God. And we've talked about before, Satan really thinks he can. And I won't even use the word that came to mind that describes him to me in thinking that he could thwart the prophecies of God. Because as you know, prophecy is not what might happen. Prophecy is what God has already seen happen. And He's letting us know, here's what's coming. It's an absolute, it's an assurance. But we have this broken branch because of the bad shepherds. And as Judah fell, the Lord put the blame squarely on the shoulders of the shepherds for failing to attend. Note that word, to attend to His flock. You've not attended to them, so I'm going to attend to you. Personalize that a bit. Who do you have charge over? Who has God entrusted into your care? Who is God asking you to attend to? The word attend in the Hebrew you have heard before, it's pakad. And pakad means to visit, or to take inventory, or to look after. The word carries kind of a dual meaning, that it could either have to do with care, visiting someone in care, visiting them in looking after them, or punishment. Attending to them in punishment. I've done both with my kids, cared for and punished. And both are attending. And the Lord uses the word that way. You didn't care for my people, you didn't attend to them, therefore I'm going to attend to you, punishment-wise. And so the word works both ways. In his epic self-description to Moses, God uses this word, pakad. Back in Exodus 34, verse 6, the Lord, Yahweh, the Lord God, Yahweh El, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. Yet, and this is a problem verse for some people, he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generation. And we read that in English and we say, oh, that means the sin of grandpa are still hanging on me. That means because of what dad did, I am now counted sinful. That's not what it says. He uses the word pakad. He will by no means leave unpunished, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children. Pakad. Visiting. Pakad. Attending to the sins of the father on the children. He visits every single generation to see if the children are following after the sins of the fathers. To see if the children are still living in the sins of the grandfathers. To see if that line has been broken, that line of sin, and forgiveness has been received and accepted. You don't have to bear the weight or the sin of the previous generation. God visits this generation in His grace, in His mercy. He comes to us and says, I'd like to attend to you. Would you like that to be care? Or is it going to be punishment? It's your call. It's, it's my call. God takes inventory of His people. Always has. Generation after generation after generation, God shows up and He takes inventory. Imagine a shepherd like these bad shepherds of Israel who don't count or who doesn't count his sheep. A shepherd who doesn't count his sheep. How would you know when one went missing? How would you know when one was gone? Thank God He inventories the sheep of His pasture. He's looking to see, are they there? Is one missing? And when one is missing, well, you know what the Lord does. You know the parable. Jesus said in Luke 15, 4, What man among you, if he has a hundred sheep and has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open pasture and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice for me, for I found my sheep which was lost. 
I tell you that in the same way there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over the 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. How would you like to increase the level of joy in this place? That's a pretty joyful barn. How would you like to increase that? Let's start inviting the one. Let's start going out after the one. Bring in the one that they might be saved. That they might experience the joy that we experience every time we gather. Go after the one. Jesus said in John 10:11, "I am the good shepherd." And so intentional was God to go after the one that Jesus said the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. So the attending of the Lord, it can go either way. It can be punishing or it could be rescuing. And God wants to rescue. That's his heart. And we see that in chapter 23 because even as the Lord promises a punishing visitation on the bad shepherds and the broken branch of Judah, He suddenly calls out a prophecy of a righteous visitation. Behold, the days are coming. Behold, the days are coming. As bad and broken as the leadership, as the shepherds, and as the people of Judah were, the promise of the future kingdom, don't miss this, is still in play. That's the great grace of the book of Jeremiah. You're going into captivity, but my kingdom's still coming. You have sinned and you will be punished for it, but my kingdom is on the way. And I haven't forgotten my promise to make it so. Even though the branch is broken, I still have in mind one who's going to sit on the throne legally and spiritually in the line of Judah. The kingdom is coming. And I'm reminded right now in 2013, even for all the bad shepherding, the broken branches and the wandering sheep today, the promise of the kingdom is still in play. Behold, the days are coming. Verse 3, he says, Then I myself will gather the remnant of my flock out of all the countries where I have driven them and bring them back to their pasture. And they will be fruitful and multiply. There are three important prophetic implications in this prophecy that I want you to catch this morning. First of all, this is not just Judah gathered out of Babylon. The implication here is all of Israel from all the countries of the world, including the destroyed or the missing ten tribes, all of the Jewish people. Skip down to verse 7. Look at this. Therefore, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when they will no longer say, as the Lord lives, who brought up the sons of Israel from the land of Egypt. See, they're still saying that today. Every year at Passover, the Jewish people are still looking back to Egypt. Isn't that interesting? They don't look to Babylon. They don't look to God bringing His people out of Babylon. They skip back prior to that to God bringing His people out of Egypt. And that's still celebrated. And that's the focus of Jews today. But God says the day is coming when that will no longer be the focus. But, verse 8, as the Lord lives who brought up and led back the descendants of the household of Israel from the Northland and from all the countries where I had driven them, then they will live on their own soil. He is talking about the future kingdom. That grand and glorious day when all the people of Israel from all the countries of the world will be drawn back to their land and we're seeing it beginning today. Israel still a secular nation, but we are seeing Jews the world over flocking into the land. God is preparing for the kingdom. Behold, the days are coming. This is a, a great prophecy of global return for all the remnant of Israel. And did you know what will happen when all the people come back to pasture in the land? God says, they will be fruitful and multiply. Does that ring a bell? Keep your finger there and turn back to the very beginning, Genesis chapter 1, verse 28. don't normally have you turn just for one verse, but you need to see this one. Genesis 1.28, as God creates the world, six days of creation. Seventh day is the day of rest. Rick, are you a creationist? 
believing in six literal 24-hour days of creation and a seventh literal 24-hour day of creation? Or are you an intelligent designist believing that yes, God did intelligently design the world, however, however, He, he could have done it many different ways and it could have taken billions of years and so we can squeeze evolution into the picture. Which one are you, Rick? you got to ask, what does the Bible say? Six days. And I absolutely believe that God created the world in six literal 24-hour days. I don't have time to tell you why right now, but go back to the very first teaching of the very first Wednesday night on October the 8th, 2003. It's on the website. You can listen to it. We talk about that issue. Why wouldn't you just be intelligent design? Because I think it's a cop-out, to be honest. And if you believe that, you know, no offense. <laughs> After I've already offended you, just saying. Um, I just think we cave. Why not just teach what the Word says? Why not just believe God for His Word and find out ultimately what we always find out? He was right in the first place. So yeah, I mentioned that because Hayden... Is, uh, has a class at school and, and has to ask me, do I believe in creationism, ev- intelligent design, or evolution? And I, I'm looking forward to that conversation with my son this afternoon. Genesis 1.28, God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. There it is. Fill the earth and subdue it, and rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Now, I I took you here because I want you to see this in Genesis. You need to uh, keep your finger there and jot down the first implication here of this prophecy, and that is, number one, the fruitfulness of the remnant. The fruitfulness of the remnant of Israel. They're going to come back into the land, and there will be a fruitfulness, which was God's original intention with creation. It's like a restarting of things at the beginning of what we know of as the Millennial Kingdom. A fruitfulness. Children, gang, are going to be born in the coming kingdom. In human form. I'm not talking about the raptured church who was taken out, who will be taken out before the tribulation, returning with Christ at the beginning of this kingdom. I'm talking about those who come out of the tribulation, survive the tribulation, largely Israel and begin that process of fruitful multiplication. Remember what God said through Isaiah. There's going to be an absolute population explosion at the beginning of the Millennial Kingdom. How do you know? Isaiah 66, verse 20. No longer will there be in it an infant who lives but a few days. Or an old man who does not live out his days. For the youth will die at the age of 100, and the one who does not reach the age of 100 will be thought accursed. In other words, 100 years old, you're going to be in Jake's youth ministry. (laughs) Isaiah 66.22 says, As the lifetime of a tree, so will be the days of my people. And my chosen ones will wear out the work of their hands. They will not labor in vain or bear children for calamity. They are the offspring of those blessed by the Lord and their descendants with them. They, my friends, will be fruitful and multiply. But in Genesis 1.28 from the beginning and now again in Jeremiah 23.3, what are we seeing here? What's going on here? What is the Lord's interest in fruitfulness? Is it just that God's into babies? Now, I'm sure He is. I'm sure the Lord loves little babies. But it's not just about babies running amok or crawling amok. God originally told Adam and Eve two things when He said, be fruitful and multiply. He followed it by saying, fill the earth and subdue it and rule over it. Subdue it and rule over it. The Hebrew word subdue is kabosh and it means bring it into subjection. The Hebrew word rule is radah, and it means manage it, govern it. What did God do? He said, I want you to be fruitful and multiply so that you can rule and manage the world. And we need to understand, in creation, God handed man authority over planet Earth with the command to subdue and rule it. Rule the animals? Listen, this was before the animals were carnivorous. 
I could get all into that. I'm not going to this morning. You realize that the whole carnivorous behavior of animals came after the flood? Not before? Before the flood, man could walk with a lion and not be not have his head bit off. <laughs> Anna Marie was telling me that the other day. Dad, did you know lion's mouths are big enough to eat a human head? I'm like, have a nice day, sweetheart. <laughs> When God says, be fruitful and multiply, and then He says, subdue and rule over the world, what's He talking about? I absolutely believe the subjugation of sin. Adam, Eve, I want you to be fruitful. I want you to spread out over the earth, and I want you to be fruitful, not just physically, spiritually. Who else was vying for ownership of planet earth? Satan was. The devil was. And in Genesis 3, we know Adam and Eve lost the farm, handed it over to the devil, gave him authority such that Jesus says three times in John 12.31, John 14.30, and John 16.11, He calls Satan the ruler of this world. Why are there bad shepherds? (laughs) Because Satan's the ruler of the world. Adam and Eve were given authorities to subjugate sin, to rule over, to manage, to govern, so that this would not happen. But they gave in to sin, as all do. And so the world was handed over. The implication, back to now the beginning of the kingdom, the implication of fruitful multiplication is not just about babies being born in the flesh, it's about people being born again. People being born of the Spirit. It is spiritual fruitfulness. Back in Jeremiah 23, be fruitful and multiply. That's what my people are going to do as the beginning of the millennial kingdom takes place. Satan is bound. Revelation chapter 20 tells us. He's bound and he cannot do what he was doing. The the demons in the pit. Out of the way. The only negative that is working against mankind in in the kingdom is the sin nature. But that will be far more easily subdued in those days than in these days because Satan's not running amok. Because the opportunity to sin is going to be quashed. How do you know that? Because, well, I'll get to that. I'll tell you that in just a minute. How do I know? There's going to be a governance of the world under the righteous rule of Jesus Christ that will be completely different than what we're used to right now. How does man subdue the earth? By being fruitful and multiplying. How do you subdue sin in your household? Be fruitful. Multiply spiritually. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, and against such things there is no law. Galatians 5.22 Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit... Let us also walk by the Spirit. Okay, right now we can begin to fulfill once again the very first command of God to mankind. Be fruitful and multiply. Be fruitful. Be spiritually fruitful in the lives that we live. Walk by the Spirit. Let spiritual things be the most important to us and fleshly things draw way back behind. I know we're in these bodies. I know we have to eat. I know we have to sleep. I know we have to have some manner of physical health. Great, wonderful. Be fruitful and multiply spiritually. Let that be our great focus. Because, gang, we're either going to subdue the enemy by living in the Spirit fruitfully, or we will be subdued by the enemy if we choose to live in the flesh. And the choice is ours. In the kingdom, the command, again, to the remnant of Israel is fruitful multiplication for the sake of all those who will be born into that age. And they'll have a little help. They'll have a little help. Look at verse 4. I will also raise up shepherds over them, and they will tend them. And they will not be afraid any longer, nor be terrified, nor will any be missing, declares the Lord. No sheep's going to wander off. Why? Because I'm going to raise up shepherds. I'm going to have shepherds tending my flock in this coming day. In this kingdom. Shepherds, plural. He's not talking about Jesus here. He's talking about something marvelous, something that's so exciting. Who are these shepherds? They're not the remnant of Israel. The remnant of Israel is the flock. 
God shepherds in the kingdom, I fully believe it's a prophecy of the church's role in the kingdom age. We will be the shepherds. Raised up by God in that age, returning with Jesus, Revelation 19, when He returns to rule and reign, we come with Him. He's on the front right white horse leading out. We're all behind Him. He puts down the world in Armageddon. We watch and applaud. And then He establishes His governance over the world. Rick, that sounds like a fantasy. Yeah, I know it does to me too. But it's what the Bible says. In Jude 14, Jude writes, The earliest prophecy we have on record, Enoch in the seventh generation from Adam prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord came with many thousands of His holy ones. Holy ones. Hagios. Saints. Revelation 1.6, John writes, He made us to be a kingdom. Priests to His God and Father, to Him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Revelation 5.10, You have made us unto our God kings and priests, and we shall reign on the earth. What is He talking about? Shepherds. Revelation 20.6, Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power, and they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with Him for a thousand years. So you believe in that thousand year reign thing? Yeah, primarily because Revelation 20 says it six times. The Bible's very clear about these things. Now I realize I've gone over this before. I occasionally throw out that set of verses to you. Jude 14, Revelation 1.6, Revelation 5.10, Revelation 20, verse 6. I know I throw these out from time to time. It's absolutely intentional. I remind you of these to stir you up, as Peter says, by way of reminder, and ask you the question, how is your priestly practice going? We have the opportunity right now not only to be spiritually fruitful, but to be shepherds. Shepherds in training. Priests practicing for the coming kingdom. Living out our lives now the way God is preparing to call us to live our lives then. And don't misunderstand, when we come into that kingdom, returning with Christ, we're already in our glorified bodies. Sin is no longer an issue for us. We are the righteous government of God. And so we'll have opportunity to do that. But why wait? Why wait till then? I love the recent Switchfoot song, I'm not waiting for the afterlife. We'll get around to spiritual things when Jesus comes. Why? Why not now? Why not get about the business of reigning and ruling as priests and kings and shepherds right now? Let's live for Him now in preparation for them. Now, I realize there are those who would call this ruling, reigning expectation the height of arrogance. Pastor Rick's one of those Christians who thinks that Christians got it all together. Prideful hypocrisy. Well, let's be absolutely clear. This future role is not based on our righteousness. It's based on His. I'm called to be a priest, not because I'm such a good guy. I'm called to be a shepherd, not because I'm the best leader in the world. We are called, gang, because of His righteousness. Look at verse 5. Jeremiah 23.5 Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he will reign as king, and act wisely and do justice and righteousness in the land. Now I think I skipped telling you what the last... I said there were three things. The fruitfulness of the remnant. The second thing is the faithfulness of the shepherds. The faithfulness of the shepherds are part of this prophecy. A fruitful remnant, faithful shepherds, and finally, number three, the familiarity of the righteous branch. The familiarity of the righteous branch. Why why is he called a branch in verse 5? Because the branch of Coniah has been broken. Because branching out from David through Solomon, that line was cursed. That lineage, we discover all along, God had another branch in mind. God was preparing to go a different direction. He does an end run on the devil and on all those who think the branch is broken. Yes, that line through Solomon, the Solomonic branch, is broken. But the Natonic branch of David's son Nathan 
runs right to a young maiden named Mary. The physical mother of Jesus. I love how God works that out. Nathan mentioned in the genealogy of Luke chapter 3 verse 31 and Mary mentioned in Luke 3.23 back in Luke 1.35 the angel Gabriel says to Mary the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you and for that reason the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. And He is the righteous branch. He is the righteous branch of verse 5. Still of the line of David, still of the root of Jesse, promised by the Lord, a king born into this world, but that king never did rule or reign from David's throne, did he? Oh, Jesus came 2,000 years ago, lived a perfect life, loved people, ministered to people, taught the Word of God in ways no one has ever spoken the Word, but He was crucified. He was buried in the grave. Now we believe and know that He rose three days later. But tell me, when did Jesus sit on the throne and rule in Jerusalem? He didn't. But it says here, the righteous branch will. He will reign as King. It's a promise. It's a guarantee. It hasn't happened yet. Behold, the days are coming. I'm going to ask you a really obvious question here, but it's meant to be, Who is verse 5 talking about? Right. Messiah, son of David. Even before we knew the name Yeshua was going to be given. Messiah, son of David. This is obviously about the Messiah. This is Jesus, the righteous branch. And when he reigns as king, and this is a whole sermon in and of itself, but we'll just note this, he will act wisely. No one will be able to pull a fast one on him. He will do justice. No one will be able to call him unfair. And he will do righteousness. Which means Bob Marley was on to something. Every little thing is going to be alright. But it's not going to be because of a joint. It's going to be because of Jesus. It's not wishful thinking. Oh, it's going to get better. It has to get better. No, it doesn't. Have you ever said that? It can't get any worse than this. Yes, it can. (laughs) Don't ever say that. God will show you how worse it can get. You know, it's not just going to get better because it has to. No, it's going to be alright because Jesus is going to do righteousness. Going to make it right. And all the wrong that we see in the world today, whether it's in our country or internationally, all the wrong, Jesus is going to set it right. But get back to the obvious question of verse 5. Who's he talking about? The righteous branch, Messiah, Ben David, Jesus? Obviously, verse 5 describes Christ the Messiah, but we have to be absolutely clear about that because verse 6 gives us his absolute identity. For those who might struggle with the extent of Jesus' divine nature, that Jesus is Himself every bit as much God the Father, Yahweh of the Scriptures. Note this in verse 6. In His days Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely, and this is His name by which He will be called. Whose name? Jesus, the righteous branch. What will He be called? The Lord our righteousness. Yahweh Sidkenu. He will be called Yahweh. Who? Jesus. Yahweh Sidkenu. Yahweh, the Lord. The name Jesus will wear in the kingdom because it is who He is. The same name that God wears throughout the Hebrew Scriptures, Yahweh. The name He gave Moses in Exodus 3.14. Lord, who do I tell them sent me? I am that I am. You tell them Yahweh sent you. And it's the name Jesus claimed when He said in John 8.58, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. Yahweh. 100% identification with the God of Israel. Please don't miss that. Yahweh is Yeshua. Yahweh is the righteous branch. Jesus is the exact representation of God. 
And John 1.18 tells us no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, He has explained Him. The familiarity of the righteous branch. Yahweh Sidkenu, the Lord our righteousness. But note this. It's not the Lord of righteousness. Or the Lord is righteousness. Both are true. He is the Lord of righteousness and the Lord is righteous. But He is named the Lord our righteousness. So much for the haughty hypocrisy or prideful attitude. Pretentious religious people. No, you are not your righteousness. The Lord is our righteousness. There isn't a righteous bone in my body except that which He creates. My spirit made righteous by Him. Isaiah 64 verse 6 tells us about our righteousness. All our righteousness is like filthy rags. That's my righteousness. 2 Corinthians 5.17, Paul writes, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. Not my old filthy rags of righteousness, but His righteousness. And further down in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul writes this verse, you know it, He made Him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become what? Listen to it literally. The righteousness of God in Him. Now, let that settle on your spirit for a second. If you are a believer in Jesus, if you have accepted the Lordship of Jesus in your life, you have become the righteousness of God in Him. Do you know what that means? That means in Christ Jesus... I'm a righteous branch. The righteous branch is not just Jesus. I branch out from Him. I'm a righteous branch. This blew my mind. Literally, I was cleaning up my office just trying to get it all back in. It's... <laughs> I, I am a righteous branch. Jesus said in John 15... I'm the true vine and my Father's the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, He takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, He prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. What does this mean? It means I didn't just invite Jesus into my heart. He invited me into His. He invited me to be a righteous branch in Him. It's not Him in me after all. It's me in Him. Which is why He's in me. I'm in Him. Turn over to Romans chapter 1, or chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. It's been said that if your Bible were to fall open to any place in the Scriptures, it should be Romans 6, 7, and 8. Romans chapter 8. Draw this out with me. The righteous branch. I'm a righteous branch in Him. Romans 8 verse 1 says, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, I don't know if you've heard this said to you. I've had it said to me. People point at me and say, Unrighteous. Inappropriate. Filthy rag. Sinner. I typically hear that when someone's feeling guilty about where they're at, so they throw it at me, you know. And the truth is, they're right in and of myself. But Jesus' people, if anyone ever looks at you and points to your sin, smile and politely respond, I'm in Christ, and where I am, there is no condemnation. I do not stand condemned, I stand saved. I stand washed. I stand clean. I stand righteous. I'm a righteous branch. Thanks to Jesus. But it gets better. Skip down and look at verse 31. I read the whole chapter, but... Well, Jake knows. We just can't go that long. (laughs) 31. What then shall... (laughs) Jake, just say it, man. Where I am, there is no condemnation. You can use that all you want, and I'll know what you mean. Rick, shut up. (laughs) Verse 31, listen to this. 
What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who's against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but delivered Him over for us, how will He not also with Him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who's the one that condemns? Christ Jesus is He who died, yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. So I'm in Christ. I'm a righteous branch. He's interceding for me. He is not condemning me. And we're told, who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? Just as it is written, for your sake, we are being put to death all day long. We're considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Man, you can slaughter all the righteous branches you want, but we are still living. We are still uncondemned. We are still the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through Him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us, watch this, to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. I'm a righteous branch in Christ Jesus. And guess what else is there? The love of God is in Christ Jesus. Well, that's where I am. A righteous branch in the love of God in Christ Jesus. Let me just ask you this morning. Have you ever had those moments when you felt like there's no way you'll ever make things right again? How can I fix this? How can I solve this problem? How can I change this issue? And maybe you're in that place today. This is the name by which He will be called the Lord, our righteousness. And we are righteous in Him. Behold, the days are coming. The days are coming. And they're coming on fast. I expect at any time the days of the fruitful remnant, the faithful shepherds, the righteous branch will be upon us. And my final question to you is where will you be when the day arrives? You're invited to be in Christ. Yahweh Tzidkenu. Lord, our righteousness. Jesus, we know this will be a title you wear in the coming kingdom. We talk so often, Lord Jesus, about inviting you into our hearts, and yet the truth is you invited us into yours. It is into your heart, Lord, that we desire to be. Would you help us live in that place? Lord, spiritually fruitful lives. Father, raise us up out of the mire of our flesh to live spiritually to begin living faithful shepherding lives, caring for those around us, tending to those who are lost or hurting or don't know You. May this be our business, Lord, as we seek the coming of the righteous branch, our King Jesus. We know the days are coming. And Father, we pray You would ready us for them. And Father, for those who are here this morning, now or next hour, who don't know Jesus, who don't have that security and that surety of salvation and righteousness, Father, I pray that Your love would pierce such hearts. In Jesus' name.